Coming up on Tech Nation, the National Geographic, Discovery, Science, and PBS documentary producer, Dan Levitt. He's here with What's Gotten Into You, the story of your body's atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner. Then in biotech, Dr. Fahar Merchant, the president and CEO of the Toronto-based Medicena Therapeutics. Their work with glioblastoma, the most aggressive form of brain cancer, is moving into phase three, after a phase two trial, which used an unprecedented approach. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2016, I was able to speak with Florida State psychology professor Anders Ericsson about the book Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Remember the 10,000-hour rule? Well, we've all heard about the famous 10,000-hour rule popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers, and 10,000 being the number of hours it purportedly takes to master a field of expertise, and now that's come into a lot of question. Well, how did you figure into all that? Well, he was citing a study that we conducted with violinists at an international music academy in Berlin, and we identified those that were the best students in that academy who had the prospect of becoming international soloists. And then we basically asked the question here, you know, is the practice history of these individuals different? And I think it's kind of important to point out that when you're studying music, you do it under the instruction of a teacher. And that teacher kind of on a weekly basis assesses you and then asks the question here, what are the things that would be the most productive to work on during the week? where the students put in you know, 25 to 30 hours of actually training themselves to make those kinds of adjustments. Then they come back to the teacher, and actually then he either points out some remaining problems or you know, kind of identifies an other aspect that can be improved. So we kind of asked these uh, violinists and, and some less high-performing violinists about how much time they actually had spent working with teachers and studying by themselves. And what we found was that if we added up all the hours that they had done until age 20, the very elite group had done on an average uh, 10,000 hours. So that was kind of an average, but it was basically a lot of variability around that average, but it was statistically more than the less performing groups, which I, I guess at the time was viewed as kind of significant here that even at the top, when you're actually looking at the very best violinist in Germany, you can actually see here that their practice history is at least correlated with their attained achievement at age 20. So at the very least, he should have probably called it the 10,000-hour young violinist practice role. Right. And, and, And I guess he talks about practice in a way that I think is different from our deliberate practice idea that you're really now working on trying to change yourself. Uh, So he kind of included the time that the Beatles were just performing in front of audiences in Hamburg as practice. 
Now, I would argue that that you know, wouldn't be meeting the criteria that we have for deliberate practice. And also, it's not clear that even if they did get better as a band, I would argue that the Beatles, what you really need to be able to explain is the kind of music that they composed that really changed kind of music history. And it wasn't really as performers that the Beatles excelled. It's not like they were playing other people's music better than the people who composed it. Well, you quote Dogbert, the dog and the Dilbert comic strip. He says, I would think a willingness to practice the same thing for 10,000 hours is a mental disorder. <laughs> I have to agree. <laughs> right. And, and, and I think that gets at this issue here that if you're just kind of practicing the same thing over and over, I would say you're not engaging in deliberate practice because deliberate practice, you have a goal and you actually stretch towards that goal. Once that goal is achieved, you're now picking another aspect that you're going to be working on. Clearly a creative ability here to kind of find new ways uh, to perform music that when, once you do it in front of audiences, you know, they're really amazed. Professor Erickson passed away in 2020, although his scientific research continues to live on. His 2016 book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, is available in paperback. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, who knew the Big Bang was a theory barely a hundred years old? Award-winning documentary producer Dan Levitt takes us from before the Big Bang to where all those atoms are now. Yep, they're in you. Then in biotech, we look at progress in glioblastoma, the most aggressive form of brain cancer. Dr. Fahar Merchant, the president and CEO of Medicena Therapeutics joins me to talk about their unprecedented approach to clinical trials. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dan Levitt. Well, Dan, welcome to TechNation. Thank you so much. So pleased to be here. Now, Dan, with all you've done in 25 years of award-winning science documentaries and other documentaries after documentaries after documentaries, how is it possible that this is your first book? Well, you know, I did think about writing books when I was much younger and I turned to filmmaking instead. But most of my films were science and history films, and most of them posed mysteries, often scientific mysteries. And when I came to the point of coming up with a concept to this book, it just grabbed me. I, it just wouldn't let go of me. <laughs> and the concept of this book is really to, well, I'm going to let you tell the concept of this book. Yeah, well, it's uh, the title kind of says it all, which is what's gotten into you, the story of your body's atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner. And, you know, the idea came to me when my daughter was becoming vegetarian. And like any good parent, I was wondering, 
what would she have to eat in order to remain healthy? And I realized that I didn't know what her body or my body was actually made of other than skin, muscle, and bones, much less where any of that stuff came from. And so uh, I did some Googling and looking around and pretty soon I realized that every single particle in our body came from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago and went through an unbelievable journey to reach us. And at the same time, I started to wonder, this is insane. How could we possibly understand the stages of, the, of those journeys? How could we possibly look so far back in time? And who were the scientists who made those discoveries? And that is the dual narrative of the book. It's the journey of our atoms and how we learned about their journeys. Well, what's interesting for me is that all the people along the way, most of the people who are primary players, I had not heard of before. Of course, they're running into very famous scientists here and there and crossing paths. It was like, oh, look at these people. This is really interesting because to me, the science is of interest, but the people and how they were thinking about it is. Uh, maybe that runs into history or science history, but let me give you an example. You start the book with Georges Lemaitre, a Belgian priest who, before he became a priest, had the experience of fighting in World War I. Devastating experience. He studied science at Cambridge and at Harvard. And this was a time, so, you know, we're, we're looking 100 years ago. This was a time where the general notion of our universe is that it always existed. Now, most people, if not all the people listening to this broadcast, all grew up with the Big Bang. It's the Big Bang. You know, that was pretty new <laughs> in relative terms. So here we have this priest, and the whole world thinks that, oh, no, it always existed. Tell us what happened from there. Yeah, well, Lemaitre was working in the late 1920s, just when Einstein's theory of relativity was really coming, had come on the scene. And Lemaitre heard of very hazy astronomical observations that suggested that galaxies further away from the Earth were moving away faster than galaxies closer to the Earth. When he looked at Einstein's equations, this suggested to him that the universe was expanding. Now, he published a paper, no one paid attention. He tracked Einstein down and presented his idea. And Einstein essentially told him, there's no way. In fact, he told him, he said, your physics is good, but your physical intuition is abominable. And, you know, when you think about it, it's no surprise, right? Because there are a lot of paradoxes, not least if space is expanding, if space-time is expanding, what is expanding into? But Lemaitre, who was quite brave, he went back and looked more at Einstein's equations and re reasoned that if the universe is expanding now, earlier it was smaller, earlier it was smaller. And if you go far back enough to, in time, at one point, the entire universe, the entire visible universe was contained in a tiny point of time and space. It had to have come back to a little point if it's expanding away now. Exactly. And now Einstein, again, hated the idea and as did most of his contemporaries because it seemed, it seemed too weird to be true. But ultimately, Einstein consulted a lot of other cosmologists, looked at new evidence from actually from Edwin Hubble, and um, ultimately came around. And so that ultimately is the, the theory of the Big Bang. 
that we know today. But, you know, there was a long time when many physicists thought that it was just ridiculous because it was so strange. One thing I really liked about your writing at this point was that you said, oh, and what happened before the Big Bang? And what you wrote was, we don't have a clue. <laughs> no, we don't. We have no clue. But we have theories. We have theories. <laughs> we do have theories, so that's not entirely correct, perhaps. There are, there are a lot of scientists' theories about, you know, was there a multiverse? Or is the universe a yo-yo? That is, after the Big Bang, will the universe eventually get to a point in which it begins contracting again into another tiny point of time and space and then expand again? So there are there actually are many informed scientific theories, but there's certainly not enough evidence to tell us that any one of them is certainly right. And certainly I like the Big Bang veils everything that went before. We just can't see it. That's right. And, and you know, that's a quote from Lemaitre. Lemaitre was a very devout uh, priest for his entire life. In fact, he belonged to an order and went on religious retreats for several weeks every year. And one of the reasons that Einstein didn't like Lemaitre's theory, because to him, it smacked of religiosity. It was it almost seemed a little bit too close to Genesis. God made a big for, bang and here we are. For a priest to come and say, you know, it all started with a big bang. But for Lemaitre, there was no conflict between science and religion because he saw the Big Bang as providing a veil beyond which we couldn't see. So Lemaitre told a New York Times reporter at the time, he said, um, science is our way of understanding the natural world and religion is the path to salvation. And that for him, there was no conflict between the two. Now, this would be the 1920s. Uh, at which point there were no television sets. You had to go a couple of decades before anybody had any television sets. And those early ones, some of us remember, some of us are aficionados now and have their own old television sets with tubes laying around. And you were saying that you can see echoes of the Big Bang when you change the channels on an old television set. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's exactly right, because when you change the channel, you'll often see a staticky white screen with lots of little black blips coming through. Yeah. Those are actually electromagnetic waves striking the television that came from the Big Bang. They are all around in space. Not quite, but almost uniformly. Everywhere you look, you will detect them. And your TV detects them, too. Now you got me here. You got me, Dan. This is very creepy. <laughs> I was just looking around my office here. <laughs> there it is. There's another one. <laughs> You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dan Levitt. You likely know him from his award-winning documentary career with such institutions as National Geographic, Discovery, Science, and PBS. He's here today with What's Gotten Into You, the story of your body's atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner. Now, you can get this idea of the Big Bang and all these atoms. You can even imagine that some of them come together into sort of a barren, rocky planet. But the first question is, is there's all this water on Earth. And in fact, there's all this water in our bodies. And, and we always think of water as being fluid and dynamic and changing. Where did the water come from? 
Well, the strange thing about water is that there's a sense in which it shouldn't be here on Earth. And that's because Earth, like the other planets, was formed by uh, billions and trillions and trillions of collisions of smaller and then larger and larger dust particles and rocks and then asteroids and comets. And, and eventually they created planets, including Earth. But when the Earth formed, the region that it was forming in was, was too hot for water. And so the question is how water got here. And there's been a tremendous amount of, 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 uh, uh, of, of work into that because there have been many different theories over the years. The first one was that water was brought by huge comets because comets contain a tremendous amount of water and ice. And that as Earth was forming or right after Earth formed, huge comets smacked into Earth and brought us the water. But then people analyzed the isotopes of hydrogen in comets and the water in our oceans and discovered that the percentage of a particular isotope didn't match. And, and all of a sudden they looked around and said, well, water had to come from somewhere else. And the next theory was that it came from massive asteroids. Now, asteroids are huge rocky bodies, but in fact, there's certain classes of them that were formed past Mars where it's cooler that have, you know, can have up to 10% or so of water. And so some rocky asteroids may have, again, as the Earth was forming, brought water from further out in the solar system where it was cooler into Earth. But then there's a third theory that the water molecules themselves actually condensed on tiny pieces of dust and rock as Earth was forming and essentially was trapped in the rock instead of dissipating. And so you've got three theories and quite a bit of disagreement, although probably the most prevalent theory is that all three sources brought water, but asteroids may have had a larger impact, so to speak, uh, than anything else. Now, you've got four parts to your book, and I want to talk about part three, and that's from sunlight to dinner plate. And it has three chapters, and I'm kind of fond of the chapter Lucky Breaks. From ocean scum to green planet. Water is one thing, but how did we get all this vegetation? Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, the, what, that was one of the most fascinating things that, that I didn't know when I was working on the book was how much life itself has transformed Earth. Because around 3.8 billion years ago, the very first organisms were single-celled organisms. They were bacteria and, and uh, other kinds of single-celled organisms. And if you'd gone back there in a time machine, you would have asphyxiated because there was no oxygen. Today, we have 21% oxygen in the atmosphere. The oxygen in the atmosphere came when bacteria, particular kind of bacteria, cyanobacteria, began photosynthesizing. And they began releasing oxygen into the atmosphere. And that made it possible once oxygen was in the atmosphere, for other kinds of more complex cells to evolve that had energy factories that are in us called mitochondria that use oxygen to liberate energy. And so um, without photosynthesis, you wouldn't have the more efficient mitochondria. And you, without that, you couldn't have the more active and intelligent creatures like us running around. And so life in itself set the stage and, and terraformed the planet and made it possible for more complex 
life to evolve. I mean, I'll just give you something that will bring it down to your body, really, which is that your cells on average probably contain about 2000 mitochondria in them, which by the way, were once free living their ancestors, the ancient, ancient ancestors once were once free living bacteria. But, but if you were to take all the mitochondria in your body and lay them out flat, they would cover essentially the area of two basketball fields. And collectively, they create enough energy for you to burn about 100 watts of energy, which is, you know, about the same amount as a 100 watt light bulb. And um, again, without oxygen in the atmosphere, mitochondria would not exist, and we wouldn't either. Well, you said the magic word, bacteria. Bacteria drives so much of everything. They do. Uh, you know, they not only completely transformed the Earth's atmosphere, but they also make possible the process of, uh, of decay, and they um, uh, take nitrogen from the, from the atmosphere and make it available to plants. And, and of course, you know, our bodies are made of six elements, right? 98% of the mass of, of your body and mine is made of just six elements, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, phosphorus, and sulfur. Those are the things that are found in, in uh, the most common things that are found. They, they're constituents of, in, in smaller groups, the fats, the carbohydrates, and the proteins that make us up. Without nitrogen, which bacteria take from the atmosphere, again, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. And bacteria also create the process of decay that keeps the Earth's temperature in balance because it helps create an equilibrium between the carbon dioxide and oxygen levels in the atmosphere, which ultimately have prevented the planet from overheating. There's so many ways in which bacteria uh, have made life not just possible for, uh, uh, for other organisms, but have made life hospitable for us. Now, Humans are fascinating, and they are throughout your book. Where the where do the humans come in, and where do the animals come in, and any organisms come in? We'll go all the way back again to the bacteria. But in other portions of our show, we frequently talk about clinical trials. How do we know a drug works and isn't doing any harm? You talk about what many consider to be the first clinical trial, and that's back in the mid-1700s. It was rather interesting, I think. Why? What were they looking for? Well, you know, in, in that uh, at that time, we knew very little about what the body was made of, and uh, it was actually the golden age of sailing in the in the seventeen hundreds. And during that time, uh, over two million British sailors alone died of the disease scurvy. Scurvy. We always hear of that, but who has scurvy? They did. They did. A lot of sailors did. It's a terrible disease that that makes your your um, gums swell up and gives you bruises and and gives you tremendous lethargy and and can make it and ultimately can cause death. And um, the uh, there was a lot of inattention to scurvy in the British Navy because they just impressed sailors. But there was an intrepid naval physician by the name of James Lind who conducted the first tr clinical trial. And what he did was he, he took five potential remedies from scurvy and tried them out on sailors on his ship who had scurvy. And he discovered that one of them 
lemons cured it within a week, whereas the others had virtually no impact whatsoever. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that uh, he was enmeshed in the theories of disease of the time, which were those of the ancient Greek physician uh, Galen, that disease was caused by an, an imbalance of four humors in the body. And so although Lind discovered that lemon juice cured it, he didn't immediately think, well, there must be something in lemons that causes it. Instead, he thought, well, lemon juice cures it, but its ultimate cause must be an imbalance of humors, which he thought was created by humid air and other things. And so it wasn't for uh, about another 150 years or so until the early 1900s that people ultimately understood that the cause of scurvy was vitamins, which is in fact vitamin C, and that there were things that we have to eat in small amounts, and if we don't eat them in small amounts, then we get sick. It's not an intuitive concept. And you know there were many other vitamin deficiencies that people searched for explanations for for years and years before finally they arrived at the correct one. Now, to be sure, there, there's a fourth part of this book. There is, there's much to read in this book and plenty to talk about. Uh, but in the fourth part, we talk about the biases of scientists. And you actually identify six. Well, I've got two favorites, and they kind of complement each other. One is the world's greatest expert must be correct. So we've got to li listen to the world's greatest expert. And as an expert, I've lost sight of how much is still unknown. As an expert, I've lost sight of how much is still unknown is interesting because um, we often forget when we think we understand the world how much we don't anticipate, how much is, we often forget how much is possible that we haven't conceived of. There's a wonderful story I tell in the book of the physicist Charles Towns, who was convinced that it was possible that organic molecules could exist in space. Everybody else, virtually everybody else said that's impossible. And they had good reason. And that is because the space is actually filled with cosmic rays and, and all kinds of things that can very quickly destroy organic molecules. But Towns decided he was going to look anyway. He came up with a technique for doing it. He, he, he designed a receiver for doing it. And virtually as soon as he found, as he began pointing his microwave telescope at the sky, he began detecting larger molecules than anybody thought could be there. Uh, now, the question is, well, why were the experts, including many Nobel Prize winners, wrong? And the answer is that they were right that if you have a small number of organic molecules floating in space, they will very quickly be destroyed. But what they hadn't anticipated was that molecules of organic molecules could be so huge that the molecules on the periphery could protect those on the inside from damage. And, you know, I, I, would, I saw this, case, this over and over again that there are, there are scenarios in nature that we simply can't anticipate, but could turn out to be correct. I'm speaking with Dan Levitt. His book is What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. We'll talk more after a break.
Both Whole Tech Nation programs and Solely Biotech podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, glioblastoma, a treatment ready for phase three with a new approach to clinical trials. Stay with us. Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dan Levitt. His book is What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang through Last Night's Dinner. I saw this case, this over and over again that there are there are scenarios in nature that we simply can't anticipate but could turn out to be correct. And that really, I think, is a good reason for all of us to be humble about, you know, how much we feel like we absolutely know something is true. You know, there's a, a, particularly for scientific theories, I think, you know, many scientists will say, yes, this is true, given what we know so far, as opposed to this is absolutely true and always will be. And this also has to go back to all of us. So often we demand the answer from the scientists. Will this vaccine, you know, uh, cure us? Did this come from here? You know, <laughs> where was the origin? You should have the answer. And no good scientist will give you the answer. Absolutely. They'll say, well, from what we know, this is it. And it sounds to the untrained ear like double talk. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, the thing is that um, it all comes down to evidence. And for so many questions, we have incomplete evidence. And, and so it's important to say everything we know so far is consistent. But there may be something new that could change our mind. And recognizing that's always a possibility is important. But it's, a, you know, it's a fine line between accepting that the evidence is overwhelming and remaining skeptical. And that line is one that scientists sometimes often also have difficulty bridging. Because the question is, you know, when is the evidence clear enough? You know, I found uh, that throughout the discoveries that I traced in the book, that almost, almost always, uh, when there was a groundbreaking, a truly revolutionary theory, the immediate research was skepticism and scorn. Uh, and um, 
uh, and it's certainly true that the that these cognitive biases that come up do delay the progress of science. But I also saw in the end that over time, as new evidence came to the fore, people did come come around. Einstein came around to the Big Bang. You know, people come. Scientists do have a commitment to remaining open to new evidence and to evaluating theories on that basis. And that's what allows scientists to get closer to the truth. Bearing in mind that you are not a scientist writing a book about science and scientists, you do have some educational background um, and you did all of those science documentaries over the years. And I must say, in doing so, you learned a lot of science. But now you're out there studiously speaking to scientists to write this book, as well as reading about scientists of the past and history as they were a part of it. What have you learned about the scientists themselves who are human that you didn't know before? You know, one thing that I didn't appreciate before was what motivates scientists. I, there was, I had a wonderful interview with um, a, a scientist who was the first to detect amino acids in uh, a, um, a meteorite. And he said it was the most exciting moment of his life because for this time, brief time, he knew something that nobody else in the world understood and knew. And, you know, I think that's one of the many motivations that many scientists experience on some level that keeps them going. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a flip side of that which is I, I talked to a, a, a relatively small number of scientists who did have theories that most other people in their field didn't accept. And, you know, I realized that that is, um, that is a difficult position to be in. You know, you need to, if you're willing to follow the evidence, no matter where it leads you, there are times when you're going to be You'll face scorn. You'll face lack of funding. And that's a strength of science that so many people are willing to do that. Uh, but it's not an easy thing to do. So I, I'm, I really admire them for, uh, for being willing to champion their ideas. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me. And please don't wait another 25 years to write another book. Thank you. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. My guest today is Dan Levitt. His book is What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. It's published by HarperCollins. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Undeniably, glioblastoma is the most aggressive form of brain cancer, and progress in treating glioblastoma has been elusive. Now Toronto-based Medicena has completed a successful Phase two with its innovative drug and is now deep into planning the Phase three trial. Also of interest, the FDA agreed to an unprecedented approach in Phase two which not only yields better science, but reduces the cost of clinical trials themselves. To be sure, this approach will be carried forward 
into phase three. Dr. Fahar Merchant is the president and CEO of Medicina Therapeutics. Dr. Merchant, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Amoira. Now, for the drug that Medicina is developing, you've come up with an adjustment to how we normally do clinical trials, and the FDA has agreed. And this doesn't happen very often, uh, that the FDA approves a change. And, of course, it got my attention. And the FDA did this in a medical condition that has seen very little progress or success, and that's glioblastoma, the most aggressive form of brain cancer. So let's start there. What is glioblastoma and what does it mean for the person who has been diagnosed? Uh, thank you for asking. And and this is uh, really a, a, a condition or a cancer, which is, as you mentioned, by far the most aggressive and uniformly fatal kind of brain cancer. And, and we've heard of uh, Senator John McCain, uh, Paul Biden, for instance, uh, those um, that's the tumor that actually uh, was the tumor that was responsible uh, for their tumor that sort of caused them uh, to the tumor that they succumbed to. It's a rare disease. It's a rare tumor, but when it shows up in a patient, it is very aggressive. So to give you an idea, patients, when they are first diagnosed with glioblastoma, and this is a tumor that's in the brain, First and foremost, the patients will typically get surgery, assuming the tumor can be accessed. Uh, about 85, 90% of the tumors can be surgically removed. Uh, and then the patients will receive radiation and they will receive chemotherapy in combination. And that continues for several months. And unfortunately, despite the surgery, despite the radiation, despite the chemotherapy, those tumors eventually always come back. They always come back. And when they come back, they are sort of deeper in the brain. They are a lot more aggressive when they were first diagnosed in the patient. And at that point, uh, the patient's survival is limited to just six to nine months, assuming they get best care. So what you can see from this uh, story around glioblastoma is that it is uh, fatal. It has a very short time from diagnosis to patient death, and therefore there has to be something that needs to be developed for these patients. Now, if you look back about 20 years now, that's when uh, one drug was approved 20 years ago, and that was for patients who were newly diagnosed with glioblastoma. And what that drug did was uh, improved the survival of patients with glioblastoma by 10 weeks, two and a half months. These were newly diagnosed patients, 10-week improvement in survival. And that has been the biggest breakthrough in glioblastoma since over the past 20 years. And nothing new has come up since then. So what is Medicina's approach? What are you developing? So first and foremost, what we are doing is addressing this big unmet need in patients who've had their tumors have come back. And as you know, those tumors are much more aggressive than the newly diagnosed brain cancer. And because these tumors are so much more deeper in the brain, it's impossible for the majority of patients, for the surgeon, to successfully remove the tumor this time around. And because of that, there is actually no treatment available 
for patients who've had a relapse where the tumors come back. So the only option patients have really is try some other therapies or radiation, etc., or participate in a clinical trial. So this is what we're doing is first and foremost to address this big gap that we have where there's no option for these end-stage patients. So Medicina is developing a drug uh, which is um, based on a cytokine. So I'll give you a bit of background. If you recall, we heard a lot about cytokines and cytokine storms during COVID-19. And uh, there are about 40 different cytokines that are produced by our uh, immune system. Uh, some of them can be really nasty that can cause death, as the case with uh, where we had the cytokine storm, where there are three different cytokines that are really responsible for uh, causing all sorts of problems in the lungs of these patients. The cytokine we are working with is called interleukin-4. It's not involved in COVID or anything like that. But this particular cytokine, interleukin-4, is actually a, a nutrient. It's a growth factor. It makes tumors, such as the brain cancer, to grow a lot faster. So in a sense, it's a food for tumors, and therefore the tumors tend to grow faster if there's lots of interleukin-4. So taking that into consideration, we said, why don't we design a, a Trojan horse, a molecular Trojan horse, in a sense that take advantage of the fact that brain tumors love to take interleukin-4. If we attach a poison to it, then what happens is the brain tumor is going to inadvertently swallow the interleukin-4, but at the same time take the poison and kill itself. So that's the approach we took in designing this drug, which we call MDNA-55. But the tumor is in the brain. How do you get the interleukin-4 into the brain? Yes, well, you're right. The, the thing is that our drug, the interleukin-4, with the poison attached to it, will not cross the blood-brain barrier. So the only way to deliver the drug is to inject the drug slowly into the tumor itself. So it sounds very complex, but in reality, it's a very straightforward, very simple procedure that neurosurgeons conduct very routinely. For instance, when they do a tumor biopsy in the brain, uh, it's the same approach uh, that they would conduct when they're doing a biopsy. So what they do is drill a small burr hole in the skull, place a catheter, and deliver the drug overnight to the patient. Patient is fully awake, fully functional, can walk around. The only difference is that the patient is carrying a trolley, which is infusing the drug as though they were getting an IV infusion. So what happens is that uh, the drug is gradually being dripped into the tumor overnight. And then the next morning, the patient basically uh, has the the catheter removed by the nurse. So that's sort of a single one-time administration. This makes the drug get to the tumor, but it doesn't go anywhere else in the body. The good thing about this drug is that the interleukin-4 does not bind or attach 
or uh, affect the healthy brain cells. And because of that, it's this high level of precision, this high level of selectivity, makes sure that the drug only goes to the tumor cells and not the healthy brain cells. So that's what makes the drug safe. And because the drug is not being infused anywhere else in the body, none of your uh, issues with the lung, the liver, the kidney damage that you typically see with chemotherapies, etc., and hair loss, all that does not occur. So that's where you have the safety benefit of the drug. Second of all, you don't have to infuse too much of the drug in the patient. In fact, a gram of this drug, so think about this. If you take a small pouch of sugar, that's about four grams of sugar. Now, four grams of sugar or four grams of our drug will treat 20,000 patients. <laughs> That's not much. <laughs> well, exactly. So it's because we are injecting the drug directly in the tumor, you don't need much of it. It's just, you know, think about a grain of salt, and that's the amount of drug that we create, sort of dissolve that drug in fluid, in saline solution, and infuse it in the brain. That's it. Drip, drip, drip overnight. Drip, drip overnight. Correct. Okay. Now you're preparing to go into phase three, which tells me there's been success in phase one and two trials. I mean, there's always multiple trials here. Let's talk about your most recent trial, the phase two B. What did you do? What did you learn? Yes. So the phase two B trial was the most recent trial. And the earlier trials that we conducted, those were the trials which allow us to first and foremost determine if the drug is safe, how much drug can we infuse in the patient, what volume can be infused in the patient, and so on and so forth. And truly to determine if the drug is actually whether it's working or not. So that's the, the phase one and two studies. And the phase two B is the sort of the prelude to a phase three trial. So this particular trial, we enrolled 46 patients. These patients, all of these patients, had previously received surgery, they had radiation, uh, and they had received chemotherapy, and the tumor had come back. In about 20% of the patients, the relapse or the tumor had come back the second time. So even worse, because at this point, the patients had a much more deeper, more aggressive tumor. So we basically are taking patients or uh, treated patients who had the worst tumor that they, they can have, uh, particularly with glioblastoma. And these patients were infused or treated with our drug, just as I mentioned, uh, one time. It was a single treatment, just one-time administration that took place overnight. And then we followed these patients and monitored the tumor, the tumor shrinkage, the patient's survival. Those are the most important things to see if the drug is continues to be safe. Is it extending the survival of the patient? Is it causing the tumor to shrink? So those were the things that we would monitor over several months and in some cases for three to four years in these patients. So what we found was uh, the survival of these patients that received just one treatment with our drug 
the survival was 15.7 months. Now, remember, I had mentioned to you earlier that patients that have a relapse or the tumor has come back, when the tumor comes back, the expected survival is typically between six and nine months. And what we saw in our trial was that we saw that the patients had survived more than 15 months. That was very, very dramatic. So what we decided to do was um, to just be sure that our data was reliable and was consistent. What we then did was we enrolled additional patients that had already received therapy with other other drugs. And these patients were enrolled from a patient registry from different hospitals. So these patients had already received treatment. They had the similar kind of tumor. And we looked at 11 different measurements that are responsible to determine whether a patient with brain tumors is going to live, have a short life or a long life. For instance, the age of the patient. Um, The other thing we would look at is the size of the tumor. Where is the tumor located? What are the biomarkers in this particular tumor? Because there are certain biomarkers that make the tumor more aggressive than others. So in total, we looked at 11 different measurements, and we matched those patients from the patient registry. So in the end, what we we came up with was we had patients that had received our drug and patients that had received the standard treatment that was available, and these patients were matched. And then we looked at the survival of the patients that were enrolled from the registry. The survival there was just 7.2 months, whereas patients that received our drug, survival was 15.7 months. What we had effectively done was improved more than double the survival from 7.2 months and added another eight and a half months improvement in survival. Now, it may not seem like a lot of time, but just think about the very first mention I made about the drug that was approved 20 years ago. This was in patients that were newly diagnosed. These were patients that had less aggressive tumors. And that particular drug improved the survival by 10 weeks, whereas in our situation, what we saw was that in more aggressive tumors that were relapsed patients, the drug improved survival by eight and a half months. So that was very, very dramatic, and we were really thrilled with those data. Now, normally in studies, there'll be a a group of patients that don't receive the drug. They're given what we call placebo. You still spend all the money recruiting the patients, monitoring the patients, getting people to administer the drug, to collect the data. It doesn't take much if you can get this cancer registry data for these patients. And once you've matched them, it seems to me that's far less expensive. Basically, this particular approach of conducting the phase three clinical trial, first of all, it's very efficient. Uh, There is so much data available. It's less costly. The clinical trial ends up substantially 
shorter in duration. That means the drug can get to the marketplace much more quicker. And all of these things together would then make the drug uh, available to patients in a relatively shorter time than if the drug was developed in a conventional way. So you end up with the same high quality data, irrespective, without the pain and the cost and the expense, and then the, eventually the drug is going to cost the patient more because it took a lot more to develop it. So it, it's all win-win for the patient and for the company that's developing the drug. Now, you've received the go-ahead by the FDA to proceed into phase three. Are you using this type of plan as well? That's the plan. So we were uh, we took the phase 2B data to the FDA where we had used this uh, data from the patient registry, uh, and we convinced the FDA that it would make sense based on the quality of data we can get using this approach. And the FDA, for the first time ever, agreed that a phase three trial uh, could be conducted with our drug if we were to also use the registry data. And this is unprecedented because this has never happened before. So we're really thrilled with this new approach that the FDA has been very supportive of us to pursue. And in the end, we think that this approach will help other companies so that future drugs for cancer hopefully can use a similar approach and get cancer drugs to patients quickly, in a shorter time frame, less expensive, etc. Now, frequently, phase three has two parts to it in the sense that you use more subjects, more participants, and you give them the drug over a longer period of time. Well, that second aspect over a longer period of time does not really apply here. It's the same drug, right? Yes. It's, it's one drug which is administered to the patient once, which is very unique. It's, and, and all you're doing then is measuring the time frame as to how long does it take for the tumor to come back or the patient to receive another therapy. It sort of allows you to get the data very quickly and you already have the data from your patient registry. So all the time that you normally needed to then treat more patients in this sort of placebo or standard of care, that's all gone. That time is not in, in part of the trial at all. So that's a huge plus. And it's also time limited by the nature of the condition. Exactly, because we know that the expected lifespan of these patients is six to nine months. And therefore, uh, the only thing that we are looking at is determine, are we getting the patient's survival to be longer than the six to nine months? And therefore, the trials take much shorter. And the enrollment takes a lot shorter time frame as well. So all in all, it's benefiting the company, but also it's benefiting the patient. You know, Dr. Merchant, phase three trials are notoriously expensive, but here you have, you have this new approach, which is cutting back on the cost. You have a, a limit on how long these patients will be on the drug. Uh, how much do you anticipate this phase three trial will cost and how long will it take? Well, the, the, the estimate is anywhere between 50 and $70 million dollars 
which is a lot of money for a, a small company. It'll take about two to three years to complete and for the drug to be then made available uh, if we are successful in, in getting that positive data that we already received in the phase two trial. So it's about two to three years, as much as $70 million is the total cost. And this is a, a large sum of money for a small company uh, to spend. But the key thing here is this, that we want this drug eventually to be made available to patients. And the best people who can do this is companies that have more resources, that have the sales and marketing teams, not only in the U.S., but around the world. So this drug can be made available to patients all over the world. So our intent is to now have this program partner with a company that can, can, can conduct the phase three trial and eventually commercialize the drug. So that's the intent going forward. Well, Dr. Merchant, thank you so much uh, for coming in. I hope you come back and see us again, and good luck to you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the time that we spent together. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Fahar Merchant, the president and CEO of Medicena Therapeutics. More information is available at medicena.com. That's M-E-D-I-C-E-N-N-A, medicena.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.